chillin' and uh, you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of 4Data. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalisters, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest who is with us to speak ahead of a very special anniversary. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Jennifer Whitworth, CSM, is a nationally and internationally acclaimed gender expert, keynote speaker, and author of Against the Wind. And she's been recognised with numerous awards, including the CSM, the Conspicuous Service Medal, I believe, which was quite an honour. She has 38 years of experience in the Australian military serving with the Navy and will explain the organisation that she joined and where she ended up in this podcast. She's experienced in leadership, organisational change, large-scale cultural and workplace reform and implementing gender-responsive policy strategies and solutions. She has worked for international organisations in Afghanistan, Brussels, New York, Ukraine and Jordan on a range of projects relating to women's participation in the security sectors. That's quite a career, Jen. Thank you, Serena. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start by asking about this anniversary that's coming up on the 28th. Great. Thanks, Serena. This is a wonderful opportunity to highlight the 20th anniversary of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, which was adopted by the Security Council in the year 2000, calling for uh, greater levels of women's participation in all aspects of conflict prevention, management and resolution. And it was adopted on the 30th of October 2000. 20 years later, organisations, including obviously the United Nations, other organisations like NATO, military forces and police forces around the world, UN member states, implementing this resolution through national action plans in order to increase women's participation in our security forces, to look how we integrate and embed a gender perspective into the, the way we conduct our operations and to mainstream gender as a policy approach. I remember as a junior analyst who had just started her public service career in the Department of Defence, hearing about this, not fully understanding it, but hearing about it, and it was quite a big thing. For Australia, we adopted a national action plan in 2012. Now, national action plans have been the mechanism that the UN has promoted as the method for implementing this resolution on women, peace and security. So Australia's national action plan was published in 2012. And then from about 2013 onwards, Defence was very active in implementing the National Action Plan. In fact, I had returned from Afghanistan as a gender advisor for NATO back into a role here in Australia to lead the implementation of that National Action Plan across the Australian Defence Force. 
That sounds like there's been quite a few changes that have happened as a result of this. Look, this alongside Elizabeth Broderick's review into the treatment of women in the ADF, which was conducted in 2012. These have been two mechanisms by which the ADF and the Department of Defence have been able to examine career pathways for military women and to look at what measures were needed to address some of those sort of historical bias and discrimination that had existed against women right up until, you know, clearly the sort of the the 2000s and, and ongoing, in fact. And I guess you've witnessed a lot of that firsthand. So you joined the Navy sometime earlier, I believe. Yes, so I joined the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service in 1981, when in fact there were separate services for women and for the Air Force and the Army as well. So it was a completely different military environment. There were very few roles that women could be employed in across the three services. The Sex Discrimination Act didn't even exist at that time. That came in in 1984. And it wasn't probably until about the early 1990s when the Australian government firstly lifted the gender restrictions on combat-related roles, and then later in 2011 lifted the remaining gender restrictions on combat roles, then in fact that you could actually argue that women had achieved a full equality in the sense that they were able to access all opportunities that were available to the Australian population in terms of being recruited into the military. So, yes, significant changes from being a young midshipman in 1981 to being in the position I'm in now. And it sounds almost quite quaint, really, almost like having a women's auxiliary, not the real (laughs) Navy. (laughs) Well, it was a little bit like that. In fact, and I won't speak for the Air Force and Army, but in in Navy, we, we really only had a dress or a skirt to wear. We didn't get pants issued until about the late 1980s, so even the uniforms weren't really practical for even working on bases. So interesting times. And I loved your stories about your recruitment process that and your promotion sort of processes, (laughs) particularly in the early years that you have in your book. Yeah, and I can understand why Serena has you know sort of reflected that this felt like a bit like a women's auxiliary (laughs) service. In fact. So I went along to my selection panel to join as an officer. Look, I'd gone to a girls' school. I'd had a fairly sort of regimented upbringing. Both my parents had been in the Air Force. And I was looking to join the Navy because it was the Navy out of the three services that attracted me. I wanted a career. I was only 18 years old. And I thought this might be an opportunity to achieve that. The senior female officer on the board, a lovely lady called Commander June Baker, who was a a, a RANS officer at that time, There was some discussion, some questions to me around why I wanted to join the Navy. And I expressed things like I wanted to travel and to see the world and I wanted to have a career and I really liked wearing a uniform. Standard things that a guy would. Exactly, yeah. And she said to me, I think you're just joining the Navy to find a husband. And I actually, my jaw dropped and I didn't really know how to respond (laughs) other than to say, and I didn't mean to sound really vain, but I just said, I don't think I need to join the Navy to find a husband. (laughs) But what I really meant was, I really had no interest in joining the Navy to find a husband. And in fact, many years later, I married an engineer in the Air Force. So in fact, her notion of young women joining the Navy didn't really come to any sort of fruition. And I guess at 18, it's probably the last thing you're thinking. It was definitely the last thing I was thinking about. I I, I thought I was joining a really modern Navy. I just wanted to get in there and and do my training and and get out there and be a logistics officer and and just do my job and and, and live some of the excitement that I, I thought that the Navy presented in terms of a, of a different career for women at that time. But you did go on to have quite a significant career, including serving on a ship. 
I did. So in fact, when I joined, women weren't allowed to serve on ships at sea. That didn't change until the the government had lifted those restrictions on combat-related roles in the early 1990s. At that stage, Navy was putting in place policies for women to start taking up positions on ships. And as a senior logistics officer at the time, I was posted to a ship in the mid-1990s as the supply officer of the, the logistics department, so the head of that department on board the ship. And certainly that was an interesting experience. I was 35 years old. I'd never served at sea. I hadn't had the sort of the benefit of the training and experience that my male colleagues would have had up till that point. I was going as a fairly sort of fresh in terms of it, you know, getting to experience ship life. I knew my logistics stuff. I was pretty confident about doing that. But I also had extra responsibilities such as being the helicopter control officer and nuclear, biological and chemical <laughs> defence officer and, you know, being required to know what to do in, in, in exercises and, and real-life incidents should something happen. And and so all of those things were quite – they were quite scary at the yeah, time I to think imagine. of. Yeah, I, I love the photos of you in your book about you directing the helicopters. <laughs> I would be so scared having to do that. Oh, well, I make a mistake. Can I just share a story? So we were so, – we were off Australia somewhere, I can't recall where it was, and we had a, a an army helicopter that was coming in to drop off some mail and to pick up some um, some people to take back to the mainland. The ship that I was serving on, which was HMO Swan, it wasn't a ship that could actually have aircraft land on the quarter deck, so in fact it would actually have to hover. So my job was to to keep the pilot aware of, you know, give him the, the right controls and commands in terms of being able to come in hover off the back of the ship pick up whatever you had to pick up and go and in fact this guy just uh, this army pilot he was a man he appeared to just completely ignore all my commands and at one stage I thought I'm going to have to jump off the side of the ship because I literally thought he was going to try and land on the ship oh my goodness yeah <laughs> and, and maybe he hadn't he hadn't been informed that that wasn't going to be a possibility and so that was a, like a, a crazy moment I thought my gosh he's not even paying attention to me what do I do and those rotor blades are getting really close to where I was standing but ultimately he you know we picked up what he had to pick up and, and he flew off again but yeah there was some crazy yeah and, like and diving off the side of a <laughs> ship into the ocean yeah no, isn't it, a particularly it, safe option <laughs> either <laughs> Well, what was the the worst of the two, I suppose? Yeah, I guess. And yeah. I guess you have to be flexible mm. like that. Mm. But that's just an example of, uh, you know, sort of the dangers that exist on ships. You know, as I said, this was all a new experience for me. Yeah. And you talk quite frankly in your book about the experiences of being one of the only women on the ship. And you said previously you also then hadn't had the previous example of having served on a ship before and learning the ropes as a junior officer. You were suddenly there as a senior executive team mm. as well, which is an added level of stress. How was that? Look, I've, obviously I've spent probably most of my career in very much male-dominated workspaces, very few women, particularly when I joined. There were so few women, I think we all knew each other by name. But, you know, that's not the case now, which is really great. Not that we don't not know each other by name, but there are so many more mm -hmm. women, which is fantastic. And so I was used to working in environments where, unfortunately, still in the 1980s, they were very still very sexist. Attitudes towards women were still very poor. Treatment of women was poor. Pornographic pictures and uh, would, you know, be up on walls in office spaces and, and so on. And so it wasn't an overly healthy environment for women. But I just persevered because I was doing this job and I, I loved it and I wanted to keep doing it and I had other reasons for wanting to stay as well, all related to you know supporting women. So I joined this ship as a result of some incidents that had occurred in the two or three years prior 
And some people might be aware or recall the media attention around some of these events that occurred on HMAS Swan. At the time that I was posted as the head of the logistics department, I was one of two women in a crew of 212. So as you say, Serena, that was a stressful, another added stress to, you know, going into an environment that I was not familiar with. Unfortunately, not all my colleagues were as supportive and as helpful as I would have hoped that they would be. For those of you who are not in the Navy, the executive team of a ship is very small. It's about four or five officers, including the logistics officer, two, a couple of engineers, the captain and the, and, the, and the executive officer, who's the second in charge of the ship. There was a few times in which one particular peer, a you know, colleague, same rank as me, who would publicly in front of other members of the ship's company call me names like Blonde Bimbo, SWAD, which is an acronym for, and excuse the French, Sailor Without a Dick. Charming. Yes. And try to intimidate me and try to bully me because he was, he was a, what we call a ship driver. He was a, a warfare officer. I was just the supply officer and I was a woman. Just the supply officer, the one who ensures everyone's fed, right? <laughs> yes, I shouldn't say just a supply officer. <laughs> I tell women not to say just. Yes, quite right. I keep, you know, I was in charge of the department that really kept it running. So that was, you know. I, was... would, I would think you would be person <laughs> numero umero, actually. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, there were uh, occasions where uh, he would try to tell me what to do and, uh, you know, f- and, and made me feel very intimidated, not only as a woman, but as, as, the, as the logistics officer as well, too. But I was confident enough to take this this behaviour to the commanding officer and uh, expressed my concerns about the way in which he was treating me and presumably the other woman on the ship who was a, a little bit junior to me. Did you talk about it with this other woman? No, I didn't. She, she wasn't a head of department. She was a deputy and it, I, I guess it just didn't, it didn't come up in conversation. So I didn't want to put her in a difficult situation or feel that I needed to share perhaps what I was going through. So I spoke to the commanding officer and I, I just basically said, look, this is what's been happening. These are the, this is his behaviour. This is the kind of things he's been saying. You know, you need to do something about it. They were actually friends and their wives were friends. So oh, it that's was, awkward. It was, a very, it was very awkward. But I said, you need to do something about it because if you don't, I'm going to report this up the chain of command. And th- this was in the early days of Navy responding to poor behaviour in the workplace or unacceptable behaviour or sexual misconduct. And so we hadn't even, didn't even really have very strong policies around even how to deal with this. But Navy was at that time taking steps to manage complaints of unacceptable behaviour. So I just said, deal with it, speak with him, make it stop, I'm trying to resolve it at the lower level. But if you don't, and it doesn't stop, I'm reporting it up the chain. A, a week or so later, once we'd been, uh, we'd had a port visit and we were back at sea, this individual approached me and, and apologised for his behaviour. But what then made my jaw drop after that was he said to me, oh, that's the way I speak to all women in the Navy. <laughs> well, that's great, isn't it? Yes. And I just said, uh, you know, this is the 1990s and you can't speak to women like that. And anyway, that was really the end of our conversation. He left me alone for the rest of the time that we had on the ship in terms of mm. that kind of behaviour. And then uh, the ship decommissioned at the end of uh, 1996 and we all kind of went our separate ways. And, you know, I don't know whether his behaviour continued on after that, but I was really a little bit concerned that perhaps I should have, you know, I should have gone up the chain and reported it because it was indicative of behaviour that was still prevailing at that time. And it was really a good lesson for me to actually, as a senior woman to actually step up and say this is not right and we have to do something about it and we have to report it when it happens 
because otherwise it will, you know, it will continue. It's a hard call, isn't it? Because, you know, you don't want to be necessarily seen as a troublemaker and as guests as well where they're friends and you know they're friends, so they're going to sort of back each other. You know, where do you pick your battles with this? But then if you don't say anything, you're not making it easier for the, the women who come behind you. No, which is why when you said to me, this is the way I speak to all women, I said, you, you just can't do that. And I I tried, I mean, I was pretty, I didn't swear or anything in those days. I've got two two daughters now who taught me how to swear when they were teenagers. You know, I didn't back then. And I, I tried to be as nice as I possibly could, even in the face of, you know, this really terrible behavior that I was experiencing, to explain to him that I was as equally competent as any other person would be in this position and that he should just respect that. And just because I was a woman and perhaps because I hadn't had previous sea time or experience, that that didn't diminish my ability to do my job. And as it turned out, you know, we left the ship with very similar performance appraisal reports. So obviously the, the commanding officer felt that I had undertaken my, my duties as well as he had undertaken his duties. Interesting times. Yeah. yeah, and not had to dive off the side of the ship. In the yeah, I was ready to throw him over the side. <laughs> well, glad that does, didn't happen. So in your book, Against mm. the Wind, not only do you talk about your naval career, but you also talk a lot about the gender pay gap and financial inequality for women. You, you talk specifically about the problems that exist in the military, particularly the Navy, sea time being one of them, but the gender pay gap is something you're quite passionate about. The gender pay gap exists in our organisation as much as it does. Uh, we hear, you know, the national statistics, I think, is around 14.2%. The ADF's gender pay gap is, uh, has been around 7 or 7.5%, which is, uh, you know, much That's better. significant. It, well, it's still, it's less than the national rate, but it's still significant. People often say, well, why do we have a gender pay gap? Because a measure of whether or not women and men are paid equally for the work that they do in the same role or the same employment group or category or occupation. It's not that. There are structural issues behind the gender pay gap, which include things like the lack of women in senior leadership, the lack of women in non-traditional roles or, in our case, in combat-related roles. Now, of course, realistically, we have to say, We've only been able to start growing women in those combat roles since 2011 because that's mm -hmm. when the restrictions were lifted. But we've had women in combat-related roles since 2000, sorry, since the early 1990s. And so it's taking time to generate a reasonable cohort or critical mass of women, the ranks in some of these combat roles. That will take time. But it's those kind of things that actually cause the gender pay gap. And so I say to women and men who question, oh, why do we have one? And they say, because we get paid the same for doing the same job. And I just say, it's not about that. This is the reason why we're trying to get more women into the military, into some of these combat roles. Mm. One, because we want to have a balance of women and men across all occupations and all rank levels and across leadership for all the reasons that you, a business case is already made, being made to have women at those levels. So really good sound decision making and so on. But to do that, we have to we have to really encourage women to join these occupations and then to stay long enough to get up into the senior ranks. The reason why we measure the gender pay gap is so that we can actually identify where there might be gaps in those rank levels or the fact that if there's none in senior leadership, we know why is that the case and what is stopping women from getting up the rank ladder to those senior positions. So it, it's, it's not a measure of sort of just saying, well, we're not going to pay women the same as we're going to pay men. It's It's much more complex than that. 
but that's the purpose of, for example, the measures that were put in place after Elizabeth Broderick's review in 2012 mm. to address some of those historical biases and discrimination towards women, which prevented them from being in the roles from which senior leadership is normally drawn. So our senior leadership, for example, in the military, the chiefs of service and the CDF normally come from or have historically come from combat roles. So to get women in those roles senior enough, that's going to take time. Mm. Um, And I think we all appreciate that. The gender pay gap has been decreasing for the ADF over the last few years, I think because of the measures that have been put in place following the Broderick Review. Yeah. And it's interesting times too, like just getting recruitment of staff is a big thing. And I don't know if you've read this or not, but recently I read that in Japan, because they've had so much trouble recruiting people into their Navy, men into their Navy, that they are now developing much, much smaller ships because they don't have enough to crew many of their ships. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, although they do have women serving on their ships. In fact, there, there have been a couple of uh, female commanding officers of some of their warships of late. So I, I don't know enough about the Japanese Navy to, <laughs> to be able to comment on, on their progress. But it seems to me that they are taking steps now to ensure that, like we have been doing and like many countries around the world are doing, that they're opening up all opportunities to women so that men and women can benefit equally from opportunities and from resources and from power sharing and so on. And yeah, and we were talking earlier about how a lot of measures that are designed to improve the participation of women, such as flexible work, often tend to really benefit men as well. Absolutely. Look, I see across the ADF, uh, the, the participation by men is equal, if not more, than women. And I think that that's a really good recognition that men want to be involved in In most cases, if it's to care for families, it's recognition that they want to be involved in parenting, to to be involved in their children's schooling, or it could be, you know, they want to take time out for their own education or for caring for elderly parents, but it's actually helping to change the culture in the organisation. So what's really started out following the Broderick Review is a measure to help women manage their careers more flexibly if they had children has actually benefited both men and women for a variety of different reasons. But it's importantly, it's helped change that culture around men wanting to take time out to spend with their families or seeing that being with their children is as, is as important to them as it is to their, to their partners in terms of cultural change, which is really <laughs> what we're trying to achieve all the time is a more enabling environment for both women and men to work and access opportunities and, and uh, resources equally. That's what equality is all about. And so part of that is the cultural change piece that's necessary. Interesting. Thank you for that. And you touched on family. So perhaps it's a good time to talk about your family. Yeah. So look, I'm a a single parent of two beautiful young women, uh, now adults, um, 20 and 23. I've brought them up as a single parent since they're about the ages of four and six, and I was the primary carer for a long period of time. And I managed that through a variety of sort of avenues for care with family You know, if I had to be away for a certain period of time, calling on my siblings to help in terms of daily work, working in Canberra, I probably used all all the types of before and after school care, nannies, young girls looking to make some pocket money, babysitting, whatever I've been able to, to to help look after my children so I could manage my responsibilities for work as well, which is, and it was work that I was doing that I wanted to do and I was very passionate about. So it was important for me to keep working from that respect. I needed to keep working to provide an income for my my family, but I also wanted them to see 
what I was doing and be a good role model for them to see that, you know, I could have children, I could have a family, that I could still work and that I was very proud of the work that I was doing and that it was important to me. And that's what I've tried to maintain right throughout all their lives up until this point. They've both gone on to achieve some really fantastic things. One's just finished a double degree at university and is now working. One is in the public service 12 months after leaving high school and studying part-time. And so they're, they're going off on their journey now to achieve what they want to achieve in life as young women. And I want to make sure that the legacy I leave behind is something that is going to benefit them and all the other young women that are now you know, moving out into the workforce and, and actually want to do great things. And I want them to have the opportunity to do that without being hindered by inequality or sexism or poor attitudes towards women in the workplace. That's quite a motivation you have there for the work that you do. And you must be so proud of your girls. I'm, I'm very proud of my girls. I mean, I think they're both very good you know, citizens of the world. They're very well educated. They're, they've got very strong social justice views about life. They're very egalitarian. They have these sort of kind of um, ideas and concepts and things that the older generation, like my generation, might have about differences, differences in diversity and so on. They don't have any of that. Everything is, uh, you know, almost an equal playing field as far as they're concerned. And so I just would like to hope that they don't experience, you know, sort of any of the barriers or challenges that I talk about in my book, that women of my vintage or even women in their 30s and 40s who are still experiencing in the workplace. I hope that by continuing to, to raise these issues, to continue to have conversations about them, to continue to mentor women to get through those challenges and obstacles will help them raise their voices and do the same for almost like pay it forward, basically. And then, you know, maybe in time, you'll have a, a world in which uh, both men and women are equal, you know, val- valued equally for what they do, whatever it is that they do, and wherever it is they live, whatever culture it is they come from. That is a huge vision. And I hope all of our listeners can help work towards this aim. And so finally, do you have a frugalista tip to share? Um, well, I was thinking about this in terms of frugalista, as I understand it, is really about how you budget towards clothing. Is that right? Whatever you like. Right. A way of saving money. A way of saving money. <laughs> Everyone has um, one. Everyone has something yeah. unique that they do. Okay. Let me, I guess I could share this. So I deployed to Afghanistan in 2013 and I suppose everybody knows, you know, our, our, our salary is tax-free during that period. I saved that and I still have that seven years later because it was important to me to, or in fact, all my entire adult life, it's been important to me to be financially independent, but more so when I was a single parent to make sure that I was able to always provide for them. And so this was an opportunity for me to put a reasonable bucket of money away and aside, and it's still there for a rainy day. Now, I don't live frugally in the true sense of in the word. I actually, uh, I enjoy wearing nice clothes and I enjoy good food and enjoy going out. I try not to waste money, but I think life is short. It's not a dress rehearsal. And as the saying goes, I think, eat the cake or buy the shoes. So it's not really a frugalistic tip, but I would say be conscious of the way that you're spending. So if we're talking about clothing, for example, I always believe that you buy quality and buy less of it and you buy ethically. So if you can do all of those things within your budget, then I think that's, you know, they're really great goals to have. But yeah, I don't, I don't. I think that yeah. sounds like pretty much some <laughs> fabulous frugalistic tips for me, to me. So thank you so much for, for sharing. 
Now, mm-hmm. Against the Wind mm-hmm. is available, I think, in most bookstores and online. It's a fabulous book. We were talking before. I feel like it's an Australian lean-in style book. It's so much more than just Jen's phenomenal story and inspirational story about her career in the Navy and the things that she's accomplished in Afghanistan, the UN, and other venues. It is really so inspirational, particularly for women. If you're looking for something to really inspire you in your career or in your business and other dreams, this is a book for you. So make sure you buy it. Thank you, Serena. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to the joyful frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You got an accentuate the positive eliminate the negative latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between.